You are listening to the Tour des Flaneurs, the cycling podcast at the 2022 Tour de France, powered by Super Sapien. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Stage one. Today we're in Copenhagen. Francois, it's four o'clock local time here in Copenhagen and right on cue the rain has started falling again. Jeremy Lecroc of B&B Hotels has just ridden down the start ramp. I didn't look to be taking it too gingerly. Uh, the roads are wet. We had a real downpour about an hour and a half before the start. The weathermen and weatherwomen told us that there was no chance of rain before five o'clock but like all speculation that was there to be shot down in flames and it's going to be a very different proposition this afternoon in Copenhagen isn't it? It's going to be even all the more intriguing as as you, as you said you know the weather is quite different from what was expecting and uh, 24 hours ago the teams were asked to uh, pick their the times for each rider to start this is one of the privilege they have uh, in, in the first stage of the Tour de France to decide at what time in the, in the stage they can start and, and given the weather forecast uh, yesterday, all teams decided to that the best riders would start before five. And I, I talked to Matt White at the buses, and he told me, yeah, well, that's what we, we, we were told. No chance of rain before five. And so we put all the, the, the good guys before. So now all the best guys will probably be riding in the rain, or, and, and which is for sure on slippery terrain. So it's going to make the race even more intriguing, even more dangerous, and let's hope for the best. Well, the first few riders of the 176 are rolling out now. In a few minutes' time, one of the real favourites for the stage, Stefan Bissiger of EF Education Easy Post, will roll down that start ramp as well. And we've just been joined by Mitch Docker, the third member of our cycling podcast trio for the opening week of the Tour de France. Mitch, you officially missed the start of the Tour de France. Well, I was I got carried away. I got stuck. I got lost in the buses. I kept running into people. I've been talking to Gregory Russ. I was talking to um, Maddie Heyman. I was then talking to Neil Stevens. Then I ran into Maddie Breschel and I was like, I've got to get going. Leave me alone, you guys. You know, so it was great. I found out a lot of stuff. It's exciting. I can tell you, Maddie Breschel was very, very nervous. And I think they're all very nervous at EF because of that anticipation of Stefan he's about to head off as you said I'm excited and it's really interesting talking to the directors and I'm trying to get that vibe that feeling are uh, there's a nervous energy are they feeling a sigh of relief because a lot of them actually said we've been in the hotel since Tuesday we are so happy to get this thing going well I'll forgive you Mitch because Pedro Delgado in 1989 missed the start of his uh, prologue in the Tour de France by two and a half minutes and still finished on the podium so I have every faith in you don't worry and uh, it's great that you've been out there getting the info. I think Mitch uh, missed more than uh, Delgado at the time I was there and I remember we were in the lift with Pedro asking asking him what happened he actually lost 30 seconds I think roughly and uh, and when you look at the uh, the result at the end of the Tour de France without the, 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 this loss of time 
time at the very start, he might have won the tour a second time. So, and at the, at the, at the time, he blamed on the, he was, he was concentrating, he was uh, what he called, kind of a relaxation method, and so he was just start relaxing, but he shouldn't have relaxed that much and missed the start, the start by, yeah, I think it was 30 seconds. Check, let's check, but it was almost exactly the time he lost at the, at, at the finish in Paris. The Cycling Podcast at the 2022 Tour de France, powered by Super Sapien. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Still guessing on fueling? Not sure what or when to eat and drink on rides that matter? Never again. Optimize your fueling strategy with real-time glucose data, actionable insight and personalized analytics. We are here to help you achieve your performance goals. Go to supersapiens.com for more on how to track your energy levels and fuel for success. Thank you very much to Super Sapiens, our title sponsors, who will be seeing us all the way from Copenhagen to Paris and beyond with the Tour de France fam following hot on the heels of the Tour de France. We're very grateful to Super Sapiens for their sponsorship. And Super Sapiens have started their own podcast. Fancy that. And their first guest on the podcast is the triathlete, Eloise Duluart. You can find the Super Sapiens podcast on your usual podcast player. So check that out. And here's a little clip from the first episode. I had a really another hip injury in my gap year. I'd had a number of injuries to that point. And I was actually working at Deloitte in my gap year as a tax accountant. The guy next to me was an age group triathlete, which I'd never heard of, never heard of triathlon. And all I was doing was cross training. So I was on the spin bike every day and swimming for the inverted commas. And literally he used to say to me, you just should do a triathlon. You're technically a triathlete now. I'm like, I'm not. I'm a runner and I'm cross training. And this went on for the whole eight months of my placement. And at the end of the eight months, don't know how, but I caved. And I said, I'll do a triathlon. And so I did a triathlon <laughs> and then it went from there. <laughs> well, Mitch, for those who don't know how the run up to a stage one time trial goes in the Grand Tours, it's the only time that the teams themselves can select the order that the riders set off, isn't it? Because normally a time trial further into the race, they go in reverse order of general classification. But is there a case where teams sometimes get caught overthinking it, wondering when to put their favourites off, when to put the uh, perhaps lower-ranked time trialists off? And they're trying to second-guess the weather, aren't they, on a day like this, when the forecast was for rain later on and perhaps dry conditions earlier on. That, of course, is all out of the window now. Yeah, well, they can't fool Mother Nature, can they? Because, you know, Mother Nature's always going to come back and uh, trump them. But I think I really do like that game they try and set because it does end up throwing, you know, sometimes an unpredicted winner. You know, I'm not saying someone who's not worthy of it, but someone who... That's what it's all about, the time trials, too. It's, that's what I do like about time trials. It's about equipment. It's about physical ability, obviously. It's about weather, about technique, everything in that together. It's really interesting. Before this, I was out riding this morning checking out the course, and I was just scooting around there. Really fast course, and it was dry. Not as technical as I thought. As I came back in, I rolled past my old team bus, EF, um, Easy Post bus, ran into Andreas Clear, my old director of sports team. And he's the mastermind behind, I think, the massive improvement of EF's time trialling. That's all down to his equipment, his expertise, his attention to detail. So I wanted to pick his brain about what he was going to do with Seth and Bissiger 
because he is, in my mind, one of the top favourites. So let's hear from Andreas Clear of EF Education Easy Post. Andreas, now it's pretty controversial, not controversial, but it's, where are we going to put the good riders today? And we're seeing Stefan Bissinger, the favourite, go off early. Why is he going to go early? Why have you chosen for him to go early in the time trial today? I mean, first of all, all our riders are good ones. But it's specifically for the TT, we obviously have uh, Bissinger going fast on a TT bike. We have Paulus going fast and so on. So we went through the weather reports, we, we, we did put quite some effort into it and it seems that there's a chance of uh, A, the wind turning from 4 o'clock onwards and that wind brings rain. We first wanted to get one rider out there before we hit the parkour with Stefan but in the very end we decided to get Stefan out there as early as possible. Knowing him it's not such a risk because he's pretty good on his TT bike and on the bike skills in general. A long story short, if you look at the start list, I think most of the people dig deep into that. Many favorites are going and I think the last one will be in the finish at half past five. So let's hope that everybody gets the same conditions and off we go. What are the other teams doing? Are they sending a rider first to check out the corners and things like that? I've heard this term dummy riders. Is that, is that something that's going to be happening, you think? To be totally honest, I mean, if you want to send a rider before we send our leader for the TT Bissiger, it has to be a rider with proper skills to give the right information later for Stefan. I'm not sure what other teams are doing, but I guess they are sending a first rider off to then let the leader for the TT kick off as a second or third rider. We decide not to do so. Can't speak for the other teams, right? So I don't know why they did it that way, but... Who knows, I think time will tell and in a few hours we are smarter. Can we see Magnus, the Danish hero, get into the yellow jersey in stage one? Is that a, is that a plan for the team? I think uh, the race is quite open until stage five. Then you have a perfect stage for him actually in stage six. It's not in Denmark anymore. Uh, see him in yellow in Denmark is for sure a dream for him and uh, we support him. Well, Bissiger is on the course now and it is properly raining, isn't it? Uh, so we'll see what sort of time he sets. You'd imagine he's going to set the fastest time. Mishaps, obviously, uh, if, a, if he suffers some kind of mishap out there on the course, well, anything can happen in the wet, but he is one of the favourites. He really burst onto the scene in 2021 when he won the Paris-Nice time trial. In looking at the start list, do you guys think it is a case of Ghana or Bissiger, the two outstanding riders for a course of this length and, and this sort of technical nature? If, if, if there was not more at stake for them, I think it's a course that would, of course, suit Tade Pogacar and Primoz Roglic as well. They could easily, but are they going to be more cautious? I mean, Stefan Kung, don't forget that you know the Swiss have a very, very strong uh, time trial generation that comes from the track. Obviously, that the two names that came that the most often were Ghana and Bissiger, but I wouldn't rule out. Uh, and once again, the, the rain is uh, is a factor. I, I remember from covering the Alpine skiing where the system is the same, that teams with two good down healers, for instance, they would put a guy at the, at the start of the field and a guy at the bottom of the field to be, to be on the safe side, which apparently nobody did here. Mitch, you were telling us over lunch that Bissiger is a kind of fearless rider in time trials. He doesn't take too much information in the earpiece radio. Well, no, he does quite the opposite. He takes all the information in the radio and he doesn't actually do that much visual 
using his eyes actually I don't know other way to say that he has so much trust in the director sportive because he's all about aerodynamics as you've seen now on TV these guys have their heads down if you've ever been on a time trial bike and trying to do that I can't help force my own natural instincts to look up and see the road he somehow mastered that to control his own instincts literally listen to the radio and when he hears right turn 200 metres he counts inside his head nine eight seven so on and then when he gets to one he turns can you imagine that actually that blind because he's so um can, it's so important for him to hold that position that time trial position he does not even want to lift his head for that split section because as we know it is a split second at the end of the day shows how much i was listening at lunchtime i was distracted by my open sandwich yeah. which was very nice so shrimps and a little bit of boiled egg on my lunch um that's interesting so i mean if he turns when he counts down and that's that mm. and uh, if he gets it wrong he, he blames a team car exactly so a lot of pressure back on I guess Andreas or Charlie Wigelius who's behind there calling the shots but I love that I love that you know precision and detail that trust back in the director and just that's what we I guess you need now to be at the top the longer the rain falls, the more of a fair test it becomes because if it doesn't dry up later, everyone will have similar conditions. And I suppose you can't say fairer than that, really. Um, if you have a situation where it's wet to start with and then dry later on, which you know would need a real dramatic turnaround in the weather now, wouldn't it? Um, some riders get an advantage over the earlier starters, but it does look like it might well stay wet for the duration now, I think. Yeah, I think so. And look, I think there could be something different if it does continue to rain the whole day. There's an element of the roads being cleaner if there is any slight advantage. Um, but, you know, if it does dry up, there is that process of when it's drying up, that still can be quite difficult. Is it wet? Is it dry? So there is there is some elements to come to. It's not just as simple as as soon as it stops raining, you've got the best, you know, the best conditions. Well, we better go and watch a bit of the time trial. The real hot spot is around just after five o'clock, isn't it? When Filippo Ganna, Wout van Aert and Tadej Pogacar go off separated at minute intervals. And, and by then, I suspect we'll have a fairly good idea of what the result is going to look like at the end of today. Huge cheers there, Francois, from the start house for the first of the Danish riders to take to the course. Michael Morkoff, or Mikkel Murku, of Quickstep, of course, one of three Danes in the Quickstep team. And we'll see how who's going to win the Danish classification. That would be interesting, won't it? Maybe we should have an honorary award for them. Maybe we could present them with our new map cycling podcast jersey because I've been teasing this over the past few weeks. We have a collaboration with the clothing company MAP and on social media today, MAP and the Cycling Podcast both revealed the first of the designs. Now, Francois, the brief here was for the designer at MAP, Misha Glisovic, to imagine that the Cycling Podcast was a pro team through the ages and what would the jersey look like? And so each of the three designs that Misha has come up with kind of are evocative of those particular eras. There is a vote. Anyone can vote if they wish to for their favourite design at map.cc that's m-a-a-p.cc and Francois you saw the first design which is sort of evocative of the 1960s and 70s with a very familiar checkerboard design what were your thoughts when you saw it as a, this was the era that you got interested in cycling I guess 
Yeah, and it's also a period I like very much. I mean, it's not no secret that I'm totally crazy about the 60s and the uh, and the aesthetics of the time. And uh, I think it's quite yeah. The, the, the it's 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 interesting. The, the three jerseys are interesting because they're not exactly you know uh, co- you know copies uh, of the. Uh, of the era, but they're really inspired by what it was in the other time, and 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 you know you can tell they have 2022 jerseys, but really you know getting their inspiration from the time. So that, that 60s, 70s jersey is definitely you know uh, 60s. It's got this two-tone uh, flavor that I like very much. Being interested in the mod scene and the, the ska scene and everything. Uh, of course, for me, uh, we're not going to name the the the, the team, but that that checker the black and white jersey for me remains the most iconic of ever uh, so it was I mean the uh, you, you, you had to, to, to blink at that uh, uh, you know well let's name it Peugeot jersey and uh, yeah and and so yeah if only for that uh, it's great uh, I, I I'm a little bit more reserved you know with the the, 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 the basic color it's kind of a blue green uh, it's it's it but it, it is very British, I think, that type of color, uh, which, which goes well with the second podcast as well. So, in any case, the, uh, which is normal, the 60s, 70s jersey is my favorite of the three. Wow, there we go, Francois. A big vote for the first jersey, which is called Czech. We're very grateful to Matt for all of the uh, love, care and attention they put into these designs. And lots of listeners who've already seen the designs on social media, either on our Twitter feed or Instagram, have already asked whether there will be a buffalo motif and I can confirm that there will be a buffalo motif somewhere on the winning design that goes into production later this year in honour of our colleague and dear friend Richard Moore but thank you very much Matt Well, here we are, Mitch, Francois. We're having our post-raced beer a little bit too early, but it does feel like the stage is over, doesn't it? There's a bit of an after the Lord's Mayor show feel as the crowds ebb away from stage one. It feels like it's done, but there's still more than 60 riders to start. It's very weird. It's very bizarre. It feels like a mass exodus. Everyone's leaving. It feels like the end of a football match. Well, you know, when your team's lost, you just start clearing the stands out. It's very much got that feeling. And like you said, 60 riders to go. I, I feel a little bit sorry for Marc Soler, who's going off last. And he's not going to get to experience the real Tour de France crowd that, say, you know, Vingegaard had and, you know, Podjakar uh, and these guys who went off in the middle of the race. Have you seen anything like this before, Francois? To be honest, not really, no. Uh, it, it's, uh, to be honest, not all the time when they, when they have the choice to, to pick their, you know, time... Uh, well, very often for so, for some reasons they they, they, they pick the, the 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 last bits, and uh, I very rarely uh, so that that many top riders starting early in a, in a time trial. So so it made it. I made a comparison with uh, Alpine Skin before, but in Alpine Skin is often often the case. After the the first twenty starters, the race is over, and you've still got forty guys coming from the back, and every like once in every ten races, a guy coming from the back wins, and everybody's gone. So well, hopefully for Mark Soler, he wins it. We uh, probably won't, but you know we're we're here talking about a race that's not that's not over. But once again, you're right. Everybody's gone. 
uh, I was in a big square, so central square where the finish line was. Uh, it was, it was a, like a big like beer festival or something, you know, and uh, with nobody really knowing what was going on. Uh, it was strange, strange atmosphere, nice atmosphere, but, but not really a, a bike race in a way. The people of Copenhagen have obviously decided the party starts now, but Mitch, from a rider's perspective, when you're going off late in the day, it doesn't matter to a rider going off late in the day that the big names have uh, ridden and that the best time has probably been set. They've still got to do their ride. When your job in the Tour de France or in a Grand Tour is further down the line, you've got other things to think about. What are the thoughts going through a rider's head on a day like this when the weather is treacherous, but you've still got to do a decent time to make sure uh, you, you get over the line in the time cut? Yeah, look, I think the time cut in such a small, uh, shorter distance isn't a massive issue. And there's always a thing with a rider too, you want to have a hit out. It's, it's so crazy because you've had a million hit outs before this moment. You've done your pre-race, you've had a, a big warm-up, but you get on there and something happens. You want to open the engine up. So even though we do it easy, and I'm using inverted commas, Easy means without stress, mental stress. You're still probably only a few percent off your best, effort-wise, because you need to go into that mindset. Your body needs to feel that stress as well. And you talk about the time cut. You're always going to make it, but that's that weird thing that sits in the back of your mind. If I take it too easy, I'm not going to make the time cut. But um, I think everyone out there today, like I said before, they've been in the hotel for three, four days. They want to just start this race. No one's rolling around like a mid-grand tour time trial. Well, we're in Scandinavia, home of the Scandi Noir um, genre of drama. Of course, it does feel a little bit like the identity of the murderer has been revealed in episode three, doesn't it? Because let's recap what has happened this afternoon. I said earlier that the uh, three big stars or three of the big stars were going at around five o'clock. Before that, Matthew van der Poel set the best time. Of course, came up very close to winning the opening stage of the Giro a month or so ago, and he set the best time and sat in the hot seat for a while. The home rider, Mads Pedersen, one of the Danes, pushed him pretty close, but then came the trio. Filippo Ganna, the world time trial champion, followed by Wout van Aert, followed by Tadej Pogacar, the two-time defending champion, and I was stood right down on the finish line as those three came in, and it was pretty electrifying, actually, to see Ganna come in and uh, wipe van der Poel's time off the top of the leaderboard. No mean feat in itself. Then came van Aert. I mean, I don't think Ganna's buttocks touched the hot seat, did they? He didn't have time to sit down there before Van Aert came over the line. And then Pogacar, I mean, he's beaten Filippo Ganna. I know Ganna is more of a kind of time trialist for the longer distances, but in terms of how the GC has gone, uh, Pogacar will be delighted with uh, setting such a good time and getting round unscathed. But we should also mention Stefan Bissiger, who we were talking up right at the start, he had a pretty unfortunate time out there, went off in probably the heaviest of the rain, didn't he? And Francois came down at least once. Did he come down twice? Yeah, he crushed, he crushed twice, uh, came back to the bus. I, I wanted to obviously try to get reactions from the EF bus, couldn't get anyone. Uh, you know, Jonathan Votus was hanging around the bus, seeing that Jonas was there. He jumped at the first occasion. He had jumped in a car to follow another rider, not to talk to anybody. Uh, Charlie Regelius is probably the nice, one of the nicest guys in the peloton. Always 
calm, collected and polite and, you know, very well-bred uh, young man compared to me. And uh, he was, you could, you could tell he was, sorry for the word, but he was literally pissed off in many ways. And um, uh, and, and in the end, basically left the, the bus on foot, uh, all covered in, you know, EF clad with two guys, like kind of an escort. I mean, there was no real... Uh, real threat you know there were two journalists me and another guy you know totally drenched in rain uh, waiting to talk to him but you could tell really it's a, it was a big big disappointment for the EF team well Mitch you were saying how uh, the rain might suit Bissiger and in fact you were at an event last night on the other side of Copenhagen with Jonathan Waters the the big boss of EF education easy post team and well this is what he had to say about the prospect of rain and the impact it might have on Bissica's chances of winning today or at least doing a good ride we determined what the best start time would possibly be for Stefan now if the weather changes tomorrow we're screwed right <laughs> But, but uh, anyway, so we determined that essentially the most friendly conditions were really early on this to start this because of that. And then, yeah. so what are we hoping for? This sounds really weird. What we're hoping for, we want it to be pouring rain tomorrow. <laughs> I mean, it's, if it's dry when Stefan rides and it's pouring rain for everyone else, that's even better. But like we, you know, you said, well, why, why do you want it to be pouring rain for your rider? Why, why would that be? And the reason is because Stefan, you know, as you guys know, doesn't use his brakes. Like, I mean, really, it's, I've never seen anything like that. He goes through the corners in the TT bars and does not touch the brakes. And he oftentimes will lose the back wheel a lot of the time, the front wheel some of the time, and he just brings it back in. And it's, I, mean, I, don't, I don't know how he does it. I mean, it's so, but the point is, he can go around the corners in the wet. He can go around the corners so much faster than Ghana or Bolsonaro that he'll, that he'll win if it's wet. Now, if it's dry, uh, you know, he just had COVID and there's this and there's that. And, you know, Ghana's obviously produces a lot more power than he does. So, yeah. Well, that was Jonathan Vorters talking last night. It must have been doing his rain dance overnight, uh, but it's not worked out the way he hoped. The wet conditions, two crashes for Bissica. Absolutely loved Francois's description there. Maybe it was my mention of the Scandinois sort of crime thrillers that uh, made him get a bit carried away there. Yeah, look. I'm sitting back here laughing. It just kept going on. It was, it was like he was describing, you know, a murder scene. He was reporting. Here is Francois reporting direct from the streets here, Copenhagen. He left on foot. I saw him with a coat around him, his two men around him. I was witnessing it. It was brilliant. So, yeah, look, it was a bit of a um, disappointing uh, atmosphere, I can imagine. I wasn't up at the bus. So, yeah. I've done that, you know, that was part of my many jobs I've did where I was a crime journalist, so I've done that, you know, uh, waiting at the end of a, a court, court of justice with a guy, you know, with uh, handcuffs and being carried away from the scene, you know, so yeah, maybe I got carried away. <laughs> well, this experience, Francois, will stand us in good stead a little bit later on in the podcast because we do have a few bits of business to wrap up from uh, the build-up to the Tour de France and a couple of things that have been going on overnight uh, but we're going to look pretty silly if we've called it too early and Wout van Aert doesn't end up as the stage winner and the first yellow jersey of the Tour de France so we ought to do the riders the uh, you know pay them the respect of waiting for the result to be finalized and then wrap up exactly who is where on the classification and also wrap up a few other things and perhaps go around the buses and see if we can get a bit of reaction to the result today now chaps a bit of a mea culpa for me because I called the result. I'll take full responsibility. But 
Mitch, you had a bit of intelligence as we were recording that last section with still 60-some riders mm. to go. We thought, wow, Van Aert, well, he's won the first yellow jersey of the Tour de France, and, of course, it didn't work out that way at all. Well, no, I broke away from you guys as the rain started to fall down and found a tent through uh, an old an old friend of mine. Well, and Bert Tobacco, he's working, he was an old pro, he's retired this year, and he's working with Sporza, and he said, come on, come, let's go in the Sporza tent and let's watch the race. So I snuck in there, and we're having a chat, and of course, Belgians talking about Belgians. They started talking about Lampard, and Martin van Gramberen, he's, he's working with Sporza. He said, don't forget about Lampard. I was thinking to myself, nah, seriously, couldn't be. So then later on, when Lampard, of course, took the fastest time, I was less surprised because I'd already had that idea in my head. I would have been much more surprised if I hadn't have spoken to those guys and got the sort of the, the inside knowledge. I mean, it's a real upset, but I mean, Lampard is a decent time trialist. He's been Belgian champion twice. When you look back at his results, I think 2017, he beat uh, Victor Campenarts. Wout van Aert was still in his uh, Willems Verandas days back then, so not the same rider that he is now. A, a very promising talent, but not the Wout van Aert we know now. And when uh, Lampard last won the title, he beat Remco Evenepoel. And very recently, he won a time trial at the Belgium, the Balois Tour in Belgium. But I mean, the Tour de France opening stage, beating the riders stacked up behind him, Van Aert, Pogacar, and Filippo Ganna, the world champion, that's another level, isn't it? And, uh, well, a real one in the eye for me there for thinking that the stage was all done and dusted. That's the nice thing about recording, you know, throughout the day, because we, we started by forecasting guys like Stefan Bieseger, who obviously crashed twice, and then we, we said, you know, kind of tongue-in-cheekly, yeah, well, that's finished, you know, nothing will happen. But, you know, we, we kept our kind of, a, you know, the usual reservation, but it was more out of politeness than anything else. And we were proved wrong once again. So as you listen to, that, to this podcast, you can see our honest we are with, uh, with you guys because we, we, we didn't, we're not going to mix it up and make believe <laughs> we knew the truth from the beginning we err mm. we, we, we get it wrong most of the times like you do, I mean that, that's, that's the thing. Well at the Quick Step bus I had a quick chat with Tom Steele one of their sports directors who there were still maybe half a dozen or so riders still to go and I asked him whether he was confident that Lampard's time would stand well, Tom, am I being a bit unfair to say that when Wout van Aert set the fastest time, I thought that was it? No, no it's not unfair. I think Wout van Aert is, uh, is world top, eh? certainly on this distance, certainly on this course, in the rain. He did a hell of a TT, but also I think Eve did a, did a hell of a TT. I think uh, Eve has sometimes days that he's just, just 10% better than he usually is. This was one of those days. Once he has the confidence, once he heard he had a good time, then he, he, he really can push it. What were the conditions like when Lampard was riding? I think the same like with, uh, with all the favourites. Still wet, still raining. So I think the conditions didn't, didn't change for them so much. I think they all competed in the same conditions. Just now it's, it's drying up, especially the cobblestones. But uh, I think he really, I think he, he took the corners on the limit, but never over the limit. So he was really comfortable already from in the first corners. And that was crucial today. Besides, of course, you have to ride fast. That's, uh, yeah. There's probably about 20 minutes to wait. Are you confident that the yellow jersey will be in the team tonight? I don't know. I really, I'm, I'm, 
I don't dare to say. Just we just have to wait. I mean, we we already lost uh, one time in TT and, and within a, within a second. So uh, let's wait and see because the conditions are changing, and there's still some good riders to come. And the Tour de France are all no bad riders. So let's wait and see. Well, Tom Steele's there playing down any suggestion that the rain eased off for Eve Lampart compared to uh, Wout van Aert and Filippo Ganna and the rest who went in pretty rainy conditions. One thing that is certain, though, is that the wind changed. It was perhaps stronger or it changed direction. Certainly when I spoke to Matt White, the bike exchange sports director, he said that the wind changing later in the afternoon was probably a factor that assisted Lampart. But at the end of the day... As they say, it doesn't really matter because the result sheet says that Yves Lampard has won the opening stage of the Tour de France. He's the first yellow jersey and he has an advantage of five seconds over Wout van Aert. Tadej Pogacar, seven seconds back. Filippo Ganna, ten seconds back. Matthew van der Poel, 13 seconds back. And the best Dane winning our Danish classification for the day, Mads Pedersen, and just ahead on a fraction of a second ahead of Jonas Vingegaard, who in turn was just ahead of Primoz Roglic, his Jumbo Visma teammate. So looking at the results, maybe, you know, Geraint Thomas might have been a little bit disappointed with 18th place, but probably on the balance of things, just getting round safely was mm. the priority when it comes down to it. A few facts before, uh, you know, uh, we for I forget about them. Lampard is the fourth Belgian to wear the yellow jersey after the first stage of the Tour de France. Who were the, the first three? Well, Eddie Merckx must be one. Yeah, well, Eddie Merckx is always the answer. <laughs> Who were the other two? Tom Boonen? <laughs> no. Edouard Sells? No. The, 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 the second one is, is easy to find, actually. It's uh, you know, a guy who could win prologues in the 1970s. This could go on a while. <laughs> Freddie you know Freddie Martins. Freddie Martins. Okay, okay. And, and I and I checked the, the third one. I think it was Eric van der Arden, but I, um, I I I'd better check on that. But I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm I'm right. And the, and another important fact is you know a lot a lot of riders crashed today, and Lamp Lampard should you know should should he have hit in the canvas would probably know how to do that because before being a cyclist he was a judo wrestler and a Belgian judo champion, if I believe my sources, which are actually Mark Cavendish, uh, who says in his book that you know he tried to wrestle against Lampard and got really beaten up. So <laughs> there you are. <laughs> Love that. Well, after all the talk in the run-up to the race about whether Quickstep should or shouldn't have picked Mark Cavendish, uh, it's all worked out for Patrick Lefebvre again. He always seems to come up smelling of roses, doesn't he? No matter what controversy swirls around the team. And they have the yellow jersey going into two stages that could potentially fall away of the sprinters and Fabio Jakobsen. So a flying start for quick step. Just on some of the GC riders, I would say most people performed to par today. I mean, Enric Mass, 68th. Uh, ben O'Connor, 79th. I mean, they've lost a fair bit of time there, though. But you might not have expected them to perform any better because looking at that course, it was always likely that the likes of Roglic and Pogacar would do pretty well on it, even with the conditions not being that favourable. Science in Sport is supporting the cycling podcast at the 2022 Tour de France. Science in Sport, fueled by science. Thank you very much to Science in Sport for their support of the cycling podcast, which 
stretches way back now to 2016. Science in Sport offer all cycling podcast listeners 25% off at scienceinsport.com with the code SISCP25. So fill up your basket with all of uh, the goodies and then use the code SISCP25. Just a corrections corner as if the corrections corner in the last part wasn't big enough we called the stage I called the stage completely wrong Francois at the start we were talking about Pedro Delgado missing the 1989 prologue and Um, it was two minutes 40 uh, two minutes 40 seconds which is well I I haven't checked whether it was the difference the time difference at the finish of the Tour de France but yeah he he, he missed he actually missed the, the, the start by two minutes 30 I think or something uh, so it was much more than you, uh, Mitch. So uh, <laughs> you, you didn't beat him to that. <laughs> Delgado didn't saunter into the start zone with quite the same panache as Mitch either. So, you know, I guess everyone will be relieved that the tour is underway. As you said a couple of times, Mitch, that kind of long build up, three, four days of just hanging around the hotel, training rides, all of the. Uh, protocol and formalities that have to be done before the race. And especially with COVID around. Um, they'll be relieved to be on the road but it's been a really strange build-up riders have been ruled out by covid one of the latest to miss out was daryl impey former yellow jersey and stage winner at the tour de france in the past of course uh, out of the israel premier tech team with covid so uh, guy niv has been drafted in and yet bob jungles of ag2r tested positive for covid but the medical staff have deemed him not to be contagious and so he carries on in the race so the rules are, they have been relaxed, as we said in last night's preview, um, but it does mean that there's certainly a grey area when it comes to riders testing positive for COVID. The other story, Francois, as a man with connections in the criminal underworld of Marseille and in the police force in Marseille, there's been a couple of raids on the Bahrain Victorious team. A few days before the tour, riders and uh, staff had their homes raided Uh, No details on which riders were subject to those raids. But then the team hotel here in Denmark was raided as well by Europol on instruction of the police, the French police in Marseille. Is that right? Well, it's not exactly the French police. I mean, you know, it's, I mean, kind of the systems are different everywhere. It's actually the prosecutor's office in Marseille. There's an ongoing investigation that's been going on for a year. It's not exactly an investigation as such. It's called in French and judiciary information. And that's the kind of pre investigation in the case to see whether there are enough elements to launch a proper investigation i guess that now if they sense guys from europol you know in the hotels that are the homes of guys it it, it, it might have you know been upgraded to to a real investigation and when Bahrain said that didn't have any information about the case while well, the prosecutor's office of marseille yesterday revealed that they had seized uh, um, electronic equipment well mainly computers uh, mobile phones and tablets, medicines, but they, 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 they said some of them unidentified and some prescription drugs. So that's where we stand for now. I call my, my police friends in Marseille, but it's actually the gendarmes who are looking after that. So yeah, more to come. Uh, are they allowed to do that? Like, what, what's, the, what's the law around that, these, these raids? What are they, what's the reasoning why they're able to do this investigation, you know, and I guess get the the warrant to come in and do that. You know, like what's the what's the what's yeah, the law on, around well, this? Well, the, the the grounds is on suspicion of detaining Ill- illegal products, which is the case for doping products. And if you if you if you if you own 
prescription drugs and you don't have the prescription for them and if you own a, a big quantity of those drugs well you know you, you, you might be of course I mean you know uh, doping and dealing in banned products is, is, is illegal while well, in France and in many countries so when when there are suspicions then you might be owning the, the, this stuff and, and, and for the computers and mobile phones they were looking for that they probably got access to emails from guys to you know that they, they, they thought were dodgy enough to investigate so very often they go into the computers look at you know exchanges of emails to see whether some of those emails may be a guy ordering stuff from another mm. guy I mean so we, we don't know much more than this for, for now but in any case what the, the good thing for Bahrain would be for guys in their uh, team being charged in that investigation because when under French law when you charge on you know whatever uh, doping charges or uh, detaining illegal products and or, or anything when you charge you have your, your lawyers have access to the to the case to the files so you know Baron were complaining that they didn't know anything about the case if the, if they're they're being officially charged and if there's a, an official investigation then their lawyers will have access to mm. the files well, Daniel Benson of Velo News has been doing some good reporting on this and a story that they published this evening indicates that Europol have released photographs of the haul from the raids. It includes apparently 412 capsules with an undetermined brown content and 67 capsules with an undetermined white content. Now, you know, that's really no detail whatsoever for us to comment on. But what we can say is that this investigation, as you say, Francois, goes back to last year's Tour de France and the raid on the Bahrain team then by the police. And it possibly also has its tentacles in the Operation Adalas investigation, which centred on Slovenian cycling, which flared up at the Giro d'Italia during 2019. Stefan Denefield, probably the best-known rider to have been implicated uh, in that investigation, of course. And, and, and he was uh, sentenced, wasn't he, as mm -hmm. a result of that yeah, investigation? Yeah, what, what came out from last year raids, because there were raids last year already, they, they seized legal drugs, uh, but, you know, but dodgy drugs, like like they they, f they found with Baron apparently with Baron team members, medicines for multiple sclerosis uh, that normally you, the, the, you know a, a, a rider shouldn't have any use for. So I mean, it is suspected, but I mean let, let's be very cautious about that. That the police apparently or the gendarmes were surprised to find drugs that normally a rider doesn't have any need for. So mm. so it's kind of it's seen as potentially legal doping but you know once again we're we're, we're threading on on you know dodgy ground here. well yeah, yeah we we don't know enough details we, at we the know moment, we know that these those droids were found but yeah last sure. year, but that's sure. all we know well let's look forward to tomorrow and the second of the three stages in denmark it goes from roskilde the home of one of the largest rock festivals in the world a kind of danish glastonbury i don't know if that will offend any Danes who perhaps think that the Roskilde Festival is bigger than Glastonbury, I don't know, and it goes to Niebuhr over the Great Belt Bridge which is 18 kilometres long <laughs> and I, again talking to Matt White, he was saying their latest weather forecast is that there could be cross headwinds for that bridge tomorrow and well I mean we know from the last 12 hours that the weather forecast means absolutely nothing here mm. um, it'll probably be bright sunshine and still as anything but uh, when the wind does blow, and especially if it's a headwind, that can be a real uh, difficult bridge to cross, especially with the slight gradient on it as well. Mitch, were you saying some amateur riders had come to grief 
on that bridge in a sportive event recently. Yeah, I, I, a couple uh, earlier this year, they were they got the headwind was so strong and the, the the gradient was so steep for the Danes that they they were reduced to walking up there. Um, I was actually speaking to Gregory Russ today out there. And he, we were talking about that bridge, and he was telling me that, you know, we're not too worried about the bridge because it's going to be block headwind. But he was alluding to another part of the parkour tomorrow, which is very, very small, bike lane size. And he said, well, our team, we've got no GC guy. We don't have Richie Port here anymore. We don't have to, you know, wrap him up in cotton wool and get him to the front. We've got a team ready for the crosswinds. And that was a little bit of a twinkle in his eye Rusty being a classics man himself, and I got the feeling like Trek could be on, you know, the attack tomorrow in the crosswinds. Well, especially with Mads Pedersen as uh, uh, as a potential stage winner, I wonder how Matthew Van Der Poel will feel because 13 seconds back does make it slightly more difficult with the time bonuses to take the yellow jersey. Remember last year he took yellow on the second stage didn't he? After Julian Alaphilippe had won the opening stage uh, he might fancy it tomorrow Wout van Aert is a little bit closer but Quickstep have every incentive to keep it all together anyway because Fabio Jakobsen could win the sprint if it stays together so it's going to be a really interesting day probably the weather will completely determine how the race goes um, Matt White again was describing some of the course as like a sort of Amstel Gold um, through normally unpopulated areas of Denmark but a Danish journalist who was uh, joining in our conversation said that lots of holidaymakers are over there at the moment and so the crowds could be big so it could be a spectacular day and they're just on the crowds Mitch because we were saying how many fans were streaming away once the big three had finished the time trial this afternoon as we came back out a good half hour after the final rider had finished, the crowds were continuing to stream away and the crowds in the city today were absolutely huge, weren't they? I have a horrific story to finish it off. I mean, you, you mentioned Nordic, Nordic Noir uh, novels a number of times. Tomorrow, when we'll be going over the bridge, the bridge, well, one of the pillars of the bridge rests on an island called Sprogo. And on that island, that, there's a book by a famous noir novelist called Jussi uh, Adler Olsen is a very famous uh, Danish uh, crime writer and he tells the story of that island from I think the, ni the 1920s until 1961 they held women on that island prisoners prostitutes uh, women who were supposed to be mentally retarded and, it, it, and, it, and they sterilized those women for wow. and, and it's a, a really a black black you know, mark on the, on the history of Denmark, and it all happened on that island that we're going to ride, uh, you know, above. And so, well, maybe a thought when we, you know, when we cross the bridge and we, we see that island, let's remember that on that island there was an institution that for 40 years sterilized or so called retarded women. I mean, this has taken a very dark turn. Daniel Freib did something similar during the Giro d'Italia with a, with a terrible crime story related to one of the areas we were in. Uh, let's not make a habit of this. Let's, keep it, <laughs> let's keep, it, keep it light. Although, Francois, I thought you were going to say you were a bit uh, cautious about tomorrow because an 18-kilometre long bridge, famously, you have a fear of bridges, and I certainly don't want to make light of that. But are you going to be OK to get across to Nieborg for the finish? <laughs> No, normally I can't walk over a bridge. Normally I can I, I can be in, the, in a car over a bridge, 
over bridges. As you can imagine, I, I, I've, I've looked at the map. It's actually two six, six Ks bridges, you know, linked to each other. Uh, I'll be in a car. I, I hope you'll be driving fast. Uh, I'll be sitting in, in, in the nest, you know, on the left-hand side of the car, so I won't see over the uh, the bridge. And it's normally it's a, it's a, the, the 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 crossing is a, is is a, a, around 12 to 15 minutes. So if I close my eyes <laughs> and you know hold my breath, I should survive the, the day. <laughs> oh, wow, <laughs> the knowledge you've got about this bridge already, <laughs> unbelievable. <laughs> More prep's gone into that than in the whole of the Tour de France preview. It's more than a director sportif, yeah. Well, we should wrap it up. We, we've had a great day here in Copenhagen. It's drizzling again here, uh, but that's not dampened our spirits, has it? I think it's been a, a successful opening day to the Tour, apart from obviously calling the result completely wrong halfway through the podcast. But, you know, um, the only way from here is up. Um, before we finish... We are going to repeat what we did during the Giro d'Italia with our uh, little segments remembering Richard Moore, uh, the Tour de Buffalo, although some listeners have suggested it should be called the Tour de Moore. Um, Either name is appropriate. But this segment to kick off actually goes back to the very start of the cycling podcast journey back in June 2013 when Richard Moore, Daniel Freeb and I sat in a park in London with Richard's iPhone as our only recording device. It was very rough and ready. And well, this is the opening moment of the very first edition of the cycling podcast way back in 2013. We're now, of course, on our 10th Tour de France and looking forward to seeing what the race has in store for us. Listen to uh, how we started. Marvel in amazement that we ever got to a second episode based on the the quality of our recording. Uh, Until tomorrow, Francois, we'll make sure we get you across that bridge perfectly safely. Mitch, thank you very much. See you both tomorrow. The Tour du Buffalo. Remembering Richard Moore. Welcome to the Tour de France podcast with humansinvent.com and Sharp. I'm Richard Moore, the author of Tour de France 100 and Sky's the Limit, and I'm joined by Daniel Freib, author of Mountain High and the Cannibal, a biography of Eddie Merckx, and Lionel Burney, co-editor of the Cycling Anthology. We will all be covering the Tour de France, which starts on Corsica on June the 29th, and as we travel around the country in pursuit of the world's biggest bike race, we will be recording a daily podcast exclusively for humansinvent.com. Here we are looking forward to the, the 100th tour and where better to do so than in the middle of Hyde Park in London. Uh, so apologies for the, the, the breeze in the background, maybe the odd whirring of a Boris bike going past. But uh, I'm here with Lionel. Hello, Lionel. Hello, Richard. And Daniel. Hello, Richard. I said we would discuss first the uh, the soap opera of uh, the Wiggins from, what, what shall we call it, Debacle, Shenanigans... Froome Fru- and Wiggins Gate. Cold War. This has been, I suppose, rumbling on since last year's tour. And, of course, a couple of weeks ago now, it was confirmed that Bradley Wiggins will not be defending his title. This was announced quite a long way out from the start of the tour. He was he has a, a knee injury, but the team has admitted it's a, it's a minor knee injury. I've been told that had he had this knee injury last year, there's no way at all it would have stopped him riding. So there's, there's a little bit more to it than the, uh, than the official thing. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freeb, and Lionel Burney.